Well, the smoke finally cleared, and uh, that wasn't just the Texas Rangers' new ballpark that was uh, billowing smoke. That was the smoke and then the eventual fire that led to the Corey Kluber trade that was final on Sunday. The Indians sent the two-time Cy Young winner to Texas. Uh, this is Smoke Signals on Indians Baseball Insider. I'm Justin Latta, joined again by Michael Kuba. Michael, thanks for taking the time and uh, hopping on to record one of these. I know we said we weren't going to talk till Thursday doing the uh, – best moments of the decade but now that this news broke we had to jump right back on yeah i mean you can never you never know when uh, when some of these things are going to happen and you know i appreciate you having me on i got plenty of opinions on on what just <laughs> happened and I'm, I'm ready to to go through all the different scenarios and and you know good and bad of what just happened yeah well, what was your uh, what was your first reaction how do you how did you feel about the trade finally coming to fruition. I mean, it was a rumor, you know, all last year, basically. And then it kind of heated up Saturday night and then Sunday morning, it, uh, it finally went down. So what did you think when, when things finally went down? I, you know, it's one of those things, uh, like I, in my mind, like I can be rational about, uh, like decisions like this. And I, you know, I've been telling myself for the last couple of years, it makes sense to trade Kluber. It's the right decision. If somebody wants to, to pay you know, what we are looking for, to uh to move him i would do it but once i saw it actually happened it it's it kind of get that sad feeling you know because he's been such a important part of the team for for so long now and was part of the re-emergence of the franchise and um you know he's a type of guy that is a hard worker did a lot in the community um and, and, and you know i'm gonna be sad to see him go but um the other reaction that i had was wow that's a pretty light return compared to what i thought he might get i didn't think I didn't think that he was going to get anything, you know, substantial, but I, I thought that there would be another piece. And obviously they teased that on, on Twitter for a while that there was another piece coming. And then eventually there wasn't, um, you know, I, I'm a little, I'm a little bummed out that we weren't able to get a better quality hitter, but I have done a lot of digging into class a and I feel pretty good about him and his ability to become an impact reliever. So we'll see how, how it you know shakes out in the next couple of years, but it was a hard one to swallow, even though I feel like it was the right decision to move him. Tough that it was on a, after a down year, an injury-filled year, but um, I, I like that they gave themselves a little bit more flexibility to hopefully reinvest in the team. Uh, what did you think? I, I actually read your article, but if you want to reiterate for the people that maybe didn't have a chance to read it, um, how you feel about the Kluber deal. Yeah, it was weird timing. I mean, it stinks from the emotional aspect. There's no doubt. I mean, Corey Kluber, and, and there were some people on Twitter when it happened who were like, well, he never really did much in the postseason, who just apparently forgot the 2016 happened. That was like one of the first frustrating things that happened when this trade got announced that some people had the reaction that he was not good in the postseason and they just forgot that he threw 34 and a third innings in the 2016 postseason and started three times on three days rest in the ALCS in the World Series and uh, was one one good game away from carrying it into the World Series. Uh, and he, you know, he was great in 2017, you know, he had a little bit of a, I don't want to say a hangover, but you know, when guys who pitch that deep into the, into the fall tend to have some issues the next year sometimes. And it kind of seems like that's what happened to Kluber in 2017, but then he came back after, you know, that injured injury stint and he was, you know, he won the Cy Young, his second one. So it stinks from that aspect that you're training a two-time Cy Young winner. I know there's a lot of fans that have 
some anger and frustration over trading, you know, CC Sabathia and Cliff Lee. That's fine and well, although those are really different time periods in the franchise's history. I, I, I don't think it's fair to equate this with those because clearly the Indians were rebuilding when it came to trading Sabathia because he's about to be free agent. And clearly with the Cliff Lee trade, they were not anywhere near ready to contend and, they got a lot of value for him at the time. It seemed like even though a lot of those guys didn't pan out except for Carrasco, but this is not that they're not rebuilding. And I, people tossed around that rebuilding word. They tossed around the, the salary dump thing. And, you know, they're not rebuilding. If they were rebuilding, they would have probably not traded into Texas because I don't know what Texas would have given them, or maybe they would have gotten, you know, guys that were a couple of years away, like there were a lot of, I guess the report was there were a lot of teams who were offering prospects and not major league talent. Unions weren't looking for prospects. They were looking for major league talent. And if it was a salary dump, then I don't understand why people think they picked up the option in the first place. If the unions didn't want to risk having to pay Kluber's salary, or didn't think they could afford it. They would have just never picked the $17 million option up last month or two months ago. They would have just let them walk. Um, you know, yeah, they're getting rid of the salary. They're not paying it now. They must have felt confident that they had a chance to move it for something. Um, but I wouldn't call it a straight salary dump because they, you know, did get pieces back that are going to help them in 2020 and beyond. And they're still paying money to some guys. They didn't just cut them for nothing. So those are my two and my couple initial frustrations with was, you know, first of all, not remembering some people remember didn't remember how good Kluber really was for this team because of the injury last year. Some people think he's still the 2017 Cy Young award winner, which he's not. It's been three years since he's been that guy. And then, you know, some people think that, uh, you know, they're still frustrated. They're trying another Cy Young award winner and, and didn't get enough back. And I, I hear all those, I hear all those arguments. I just, you know, I, I don't agree. I think people have to realize it's 2020 and not 2017. Corey Kluber. That's the first thing that jumped out at me. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, there's people that are going to I hate to, you know, be negative, but it's there's going to be people complaining no matter what. You had people during the season saying that they think it would be more valuable to pick to resign Puig at like 10 million dollars a year as opposed to picking up Kluber's option. And these are the same people now that are complaining that the Indians didn't get enough for him. You're never going to I mean, we all know this, but you're never going to please everybody. There's always going to be people that are upset with what you did. I think I, I do appreciate that the Indians still stay their course, no matter what the fans are saying. I, I think for the most part, the only time I think that they'll really, really consider what they're doing is with Lindor. And other than that, I think they've been pretty good at no matter what people are going to react to what they're doing. They know they have a plan in place and they and they're very process oriented and they follow that. And that's what I do appreciate about them. You don't have to like the deal. You don't have to like that. You know, we, we don't want to necessarily pay a guy we're not confident is going to be healthy, $17 million a year. I saw somebody complaining on Twitter today that now all this after with all this free money, the Indians have no reason to not be in on Josh Allenson. I don't know when people are going to really understand that that's never going to happen. You don't have to like the reasoning for why it's not going to happen, but it's not going to happen. So to complain about it and to, and to act like, this team doesn't want to win because they don't want to go sign a 34 year old with injury history to a 18, 19, $20 million a year contract for three, four years. I don't understand. I just, I think people get really caught up. We talked about this before in the names and, and not really what the value is. So I, I like what you said about how some people value don't think Kluber is any good at all, even though obviously he is. 
to, there's some value at least. And some people thought that he was a Cy Young award winner. I had somebody text me and, and say that they hope that the Indians get Josh Young and Colwyn in a, in this Kluber deal. And I was like, wait a minute, do you, do you understand who we're talking about right now? He's not that Kluber. He's still good. He'll get something, but not that good. I thought it was light by maybe one player. I was hoping for maybe another 45 outfielder with maybe a better bat than defense or something along those lines, or potentially even a, a guy who could play around the diamond. I, I was, I, we talked a little bit about um, uh, Nick Solak a little bit, and that would have been kind of an interesting piece to have, but at the end of the day, they were willing to take his whole salary. And I think that shows a lot about his market that I didn't really think would happen. I thought that teams would see that as a, as a positive gamble because of, the pricing, like you said in your article, that pitchers are getting nowadays, but evidently people are more concerned with the health issues and the declining metrics and velocity than than I thought they would be. So to get, you know, they, they don't, they don't pay people to play for other teams. They just don't do it. Uh, and I think in this situation, they saw the opportunity to get a reliever they highly coveted who can make a big impact in the back end of a bullpen and a fourth outfielder that might be able to, play around all three spots, play good defense, steal some bases. And potentially, you know, if they're going to play Fran Mill on the outfield for two to three times a week, he's going to go in and play for him in that and late in the innings or late in the innings, late in the game for a couple innings and might be some value there. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's tough seeing some of the reactions and people that aren't really willing to give it a shot or, or even give the innings the benefit of the doubt that they so deserve after all these years of proving us wrong time and time again when people complain about what they're doing so it, it is what it is I get the, that it's difficult to, to see Kluber go though and, and I'm gonna miss him as well I'm looking at a signed Kluber picture in my basement right now and it's uh, it feels weird to not see him not going to see him in an Indian jersey next year yeah it's gonna be super weird and it's a real bummer that it comes to that because you know the guys like that I mean obviously he's third in franchise history in strikeouts uh, he's the only two-time Cy Young award winner in the franchise's history Someday, he's going to probably have uh, a plaque in center field, a progressive field in uh, Heritage Park. Like, that's going to happen someday. You'd yeah. like to, you'd like to maybe have things end on better terms uh, than they did. Obviously, nobody knew after the comeback or that was going to be the the last time we'd see him pitching in his uniform, but it was, you know. But I guess it should have made sense because you know they talked about it all last winter. You know, Bauer and Kluber, they were going to trade one of them. And then the Bauer trade came to fruition in the summer. Um, obviously, the team's roster construction and standings uh, and, and maybe some of his emotion caused that. But, you know, that's kind of how the Indians are trade-wise. They don't just – very, very not very often do they make a trade, you know, start trade rumors. Do they emerge about the Indians talking about one of their major league pieces and it just kind of develops overnight? You know, I mean, the Kluber thing didn't – I mean, yeah, news started to swirl Saturday night, and then it got happened on Sunday. But, again, this was starting a year back. This is not something that happens usually in the matter of a week or two for the Indians. This is build up for years, you know, talking with multiple teams going back to last winter, and, and finally they found a value point they were comfortable with, you know. And it should, it should stand a reason that, like you said, the Rangers paid – a price for what they and the Indians think Corey Kluber is in 2020. The Indians were realistic and, and understood that nobody, no major league team was trading for 
2017 Corey Kluber, um, and th- and that's how the value the value is reflected. It's it's based on what the teams think he can do in 2020 and potentially 2021. And I, I kind of want to go back to I don't want to I don't want to criticize the fans. You know they can they can feel however they want. Um, you know if they're upset about it, that's it's understandable because you know like I wrote in my article, Corey Kluber had one of the best postseason runs as a pitcher as as I've ever seen in my life. You know that was incredible, and it stinks to lose that. You know the 18 strikeouts, the the two Cy Young awards. I mean, all that was really special to watch, and you know, especially considering when they got him, he wasn't really a prospect, or nobody really knew what to expect from him. So that was really special to watch develop. And you know, he was the ace of the team when the franchise's fortunes kind of turned around in 20, 2014. I guess 2013, they made the playoffs and he kind of emerged, but he wasn't quite, you know, the Corey Clipper we know yet. Right. Um, but, you know, his presence at the top of the rotation kind of built what the Indians have pitching wise, you know, it kind of all started with him and, and evolved into what it is now. So that stinks to lose. And I get it from the fans perspective that way. So I don't want to criticize them, but I mean, just being realistic here, like I said, this is 20, we're going to 2020. Corey Kluber's 34 years old. He's thrown over a thousand innings the last four years, uh, or between 2014 and 2018. That's a lot of innings. Uh, even Second in the guy, MLB behind Scherzer. Right. And this is all for a guy who is a late bloomer. So it's not like, you know, he was used to this early in his career and then, you know, things happen and he, you know, he hasn't been doing this for a long time. I know four years and a thousand innings is a lot, but it's not like, you know, he blossomed early and, you know, all this kind of got to him late and because of his age and, and the innings, that's just kind of how, you know, things go. No, nobody beats father time. You, you can hold it off sometimes, but you can't beat it. Um, that's the only thing I really, I really, don't understand is people not being able to, like I said, be, being a fan is not even rational. Being a fan of any sports team is not rational. So I understand why people can't really come to terms with some part of it, but you know, like we just said, it's 20, it, we're only in 2020, not 2017 Corey Kluber. And I don't, I don't think that he's going to be 2017 Corey Kluber. I was just looking at the uh, steamer projections on fan graphs. They have a 3.6 uh, wins above replacement. They have him going into 2020 with 187 innings and a 420 ERA. And I got to say, for $17 million, if that's actually what his talent level is, that's they're overpaying, you know? That's that's a good time for the Indians to get out. His value was higher last season, but whatever trade offers they were getting, they felt would be – they felt should have been better. And then given how things went this year when he was bad before he got hurt, obviously his trade value slipped again. Um I don't know if he's going to be that bad. I don't know if he's going to be that good. We're going to have to find out. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of what's going to determine how good or bad this trade is depends on how Corey Kluber looks in 2020. And, and if Texas winds up picking up his option or his, I'm sorry, his, his op- option for 2021 is now vesting. If he throws 160 innings. So if he's that healthy, then, you know, maybe he's good and he's better than a 420 ERA and a three, three win season. But, you know, projections are what they are, and, and clearly the Indians didn't think that he was going to be as good as he used to be, and the Rangers sure as heck didn't pay the price to think that he was good as he was going to be. Yeah, I don't I don't think – hundred. I think 187 innings is very generous for, the, you know, the injury 
issues that he's had in the last couple of years, not, not the, the broken arm, but an oblique, his back, his knee that was causing his release point to, to alter and his stuff got flat. There's a lot of things that have been going on. I mean, 2017, the people, the reason that people even try to argue that he wasn't good in the postseason was two starts against the Yankees with a bad back. And then uh, against Houston, couldn't really find his release point, couldn't be consistent on the mound, you know, goes back and never has a chance to, to pitch again in the series. So, I mean, three bad outings and not even horrendous in, in Houston. It wasn't – the Yankees ones were a little disappointing, especially the momentum that we had. We ended up winning the first game in the extra innings on that crazy comeback. But, um, you know, game five, thinking that we had a good shot, couldn't get it done. I get why people tried to say that because – it's a what have you done for me lately society, but he was excellent in the postseason. He's not the same pitcher that he was before. The mileage, I think, is going to catch up to him at some point. Uh, will it be this year? I mean, there's three. Like, if you look at it logistically, there's obviously there's three outcomes here. He has a, a type of year that exceeds the 3.4 war that he's projected at. Uh, instead of 20 to 30 million dollars in surplus value, he's more like 40 to 60, which that would be a little bit disappointing. And then the middle option is he's a solid number three. He does what he's projected to do. Feels still the return still feels light, but at the end of the day, um, you know, it wasn't like he had this crazy all-star season. And then there's the last outcome where he doesn't pitch well, his stuff declines more, he gets hurt again. And then it, and then everyone's going to be sitting here going, well, okay. I mean, we wouldn't have got anything from him anyways. If he, if he pitched like this, we would have bought him out. There's no way they would pick up his option next year. Let's, let's assume it did invest or something, pick up his option and then try to trade him then. So I think it's always smarter to sell one year too early than one year too late. And I think the Indians do a good job of this. And that's why it makes sense to, to do it now because, you know, worst case scenario, he could be even worse next year or get hurt again. And then there's no trade value. And if they really like class A and they think, Delano DeShields Jr. can be a valuable bench piece for a contending team, then then it makes sense to do it. So I'm okay with the move. I thought the return was light, but you know, time will tell and and how this shakes out for both teams. Yeah, I, I would also argue the Indians probably already did trade him a year too late. I think that's kind of what played into this. I think that the offers were were more likely better last year because what he still finished what fifth or sixth in the Cy Young voting last year, um, in in twenty eighteen, yeah, I'm sorry, not last year, twenty eighteen. He had you know he was a five win pitcher. He won he won twenty games in twenty eighteen and uh, was worth five point five wins above replacement uh, per fan graphs and in two hundred fifteen innings. Obviously, his value was way higher last winter, and the Indians just didn't think that the offers were good enough and obviously you saw what happened and, and the, the value went down. So I, I would say the Indians felt like they were already a year too late trading him after what happened. Obviously you're not going to be able to predict a, a line drive off of someone's forearm. You know, he never had a chance to come back and rebuild his value. Um, I just don't know that, you know, obviously he, he, he wasn't pitching well before the injury, and that was the issue. He didn't have a chance to show that he could correct those issues. So nobody really knows if those issues are going to get ironed out, if some time off for pitching kind of helped his arm or helped – I shouldn't say his arm. His arm's not the problem. It's his knee and his back, like you said, and some other structural things with the rest of his body. Who knows if that's going to help with time off, but 
they, I think they still got out a year too late, but like you said, they weren't going to let it. I, I don't think because they made the trade, there were some people who wanted them to go into the season with Kluber. If this was the best they could get, some people wanted them to go into the season with Kluber and let him reestablish his trade value and try to trade him, you know, in July. And I would probably guess that because this happened, the Indians felt like that was a, too much of a gamble to see him potentially not rebuild that value and then not get even this for him. And I, I, I know it stinks from a PR perspective and a fan perspective, but you know, sometimes you got to make the tough mood move and, and make the tough decision, even if it's unpopular and get out before things get worse and, and do what's best for the franchise. And I think, you know, we can talk about the money aspect, but from a pure baseball perspective on this, I don't think, I think it was the right move, you know, to be a little risk averse here and get what you can for him now, rather than take the gamble that he could be better and, and get you a better trade return in July. I, I, I agree with you. And also like, like that's been circulating all over Twitter. It, it looked like with some teams, like namely the angels that they had asked for top prospects for him. You know, they, they, there was a rumor that came out that they wanted Brandon Marsh from the angels who's their number two prospect, which makes uh, sense, it, which makes sense. And when they decide, and he's, he's probably, he's not major league ready. I think he's probably needs another, maybe a year, a year and a half, but he is a, an outfielder with speed can play all, all, all three spots, lots of raw power. It made sense because at worst, if you didn't get an MLB ready caliber talent, if you could get a guy like that to slot into your outfield, that looks pretty good. And a year from now, when you have Daniel Johnson, Mercado and Brandon Marsh out there, it made sense to ask. And then, you know, that also shows a lot, like I've said a couple of times, about what they feel about Class A. I would think if they were willing to make this basically about him, they must really must really value what he can do and what he can bring to a team. So I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to the Indians. They're great at pitching development. They're, they, they don't get fleeced very often. They're not the type of team that you make a deal with and, and you go, oh, thank God. The Indians are, you know, the Indians suck. They don't know what they're doing. That doesn't happen. So anybody suggesting as if we got fleeced, we didn't get fleeced. This was a calculated move. Like you said, I think, I guess a better way to put what I said earlier was maybe not a year too early, but more like it's right in that middle. It, this could probably go really bad and it's time to just cut bait. We know we are a little bit late and it's time to move forward. So I, I like it. I like what Antonetti said today on MLB network. He you know, said it was a tough decision. Uh, but it made sense for them. They think that these guys can really help the team this, this coming year. And, you know, is encouraged by the money that they now have that they could reinvest. Not that they're going to do anything crazy, but there is a little bit more flexibility to, to add on the fringes and some areas that we could need um, to help supplement the big league team for next year. So I'm looking forward to see what they do with some of this money. It, it would really alienate the fan base if they don't use it at all. I think they will. A little bit, not anything, like I said, substantial, but um, they have to do something with it because if not, people are going to be even more upset than they already are. Agree. And did he say that? You were just talking about his appearance. I know we Did he say that they feel like they have more room to add to the roster now financially? Was that something he addressed? I didn't see the, I didn't see the quote you're talking about. I didn't see him. I didn't hear, and maybe I did, but I don't remember hearing him say that specifically, but I got, I got an update. I'm pretty sure from Paul Hoynes yesterday that said that Antonetti 
mentioned that they would be looking for a rental second baseman now to to fill a roster spot with some of this money that they have. So I, I could find it. Don't hold me to that. Maybe I, Oh wait. Uh, Antonetti said they can use some of the money they saved on Kluber's deal to get an infielder, most probably a second baseman. That's what they, that's okay. what he said. Okay. So, so yeah, like you said, they're not, they're probably not going to, I think what I wrote up was they saved about uh, 13 million or almost 14 million by yeah. trading, trading, they traded, traded Kluber 17 and a half million kicked in 500,000. They're going to owe the shields around 2.4 based on his uh, arbitration projection. And class a is, you know, a 500 K player. Cause he's a rookie or he's a, I think he's still a rookie actually. I don't think he, I don't think he pitched enough innings to be a, uh, cross the rookie or loses eligibility for 2020. Yeah, he's prospect eligible. He got put on all the Indians lists. Okay, so I'm looking at roster resource on Fangraphs right now, and they have the Indians payroll at 91 million uh, for 2020, which this is the first time they've been below 100, I think, since uh, what 2014, maybe 2015. Uh, 2015, they had they were at 77.4 mil, and then they bumped up every year until last year where they they cut 20 mil. Um, okay. I think after arbitration and everything, it's going to be more in like the 103 to 108 range is what oh. is the offhand math that I was looking at. Uh, I use spot track though. So may, there may be some discrepancies or maybe they do it differently or they included different numbers that I wasn't supposed to have in there, but that's kind of the range that I was looking at. Um, so, and, and at the end, I mean, we know, we know how the Indians operate. They, they, and Antonetti said this today as well, that, you know, he feels like, they added when they, they went out and they made some bigger moves for them. They got Edwin, they, they committed to trading prospect capital to get Andrew Miller. They made some moves uh, to help when they felt like the team was at its prime contending. They, he didn't say it specifically like this, but he insin- insinuated that when they, when they felt like the roster was really close, they were really ready to push in the chips, but they just, it's not sustainable for our market size as everyone's probably sick of hearing, but sustainable for a market size to continuously spend above what we can realistically operate at. And so they had to start scaling back a little bit um, in the coming years here. And then at some point, again, it, the way that they've operated in the past, if it's time, they'll put it, they'll push in the chips. But I think right now it's going to be more on the fringes. They're not going to go out and do something super aggressive and, and, you know, something out of character. Um, But it, they, I mean, they spent above the league average payroll in one of the seasons in 2018, they were at 142.8 mil and the average in the, in the league was 139.3 every other year, 2017, they were close. Uh, 2019, they were within your shot of, of the average a little bit off like 13 mil, but not super far away. Um, I don't know. I think that payroll definitely correlates to winning, but when you're, when you have a front office like ours, you can extract value in a lot of different ways. And that that doesn't necessarily mean going out and getting a big name guy that everybody knows. So we'll see how they do it though. It's, it's yet to be seen how they decide to allocate the funds, but it sounds like they're going to do something, just not something that people probably are going to be excited about. Yeah, that's fair. I I know people probably want them. Like you said, the people are talking about Josh Donaldson or whatever. And I look, there's just really no way to prove the money aspect. We could sit here and talk about that all day. There's really not a whole lot of ways publicly to prove the whole money aspect of everything. Um, all we can really do is look at 
what's available to us and that's the TV contract and their attendance and the payroll and uh, whatever they get from revenue sharing. I, I would like to think they can get this back to 110, 115. I don't know about you now, probably 110 more where they're going to wind up to make this better. Cause it looks like, you know, in all angles, this is going to wind up, they're going to have Lindor for 2020. And if you're going to do that, like we said in the last podcast, if you're going to do that, you know, don't stop now. You're going to have to find a way to make this team good because, or, or at least get better than you were a year ago because you just don't want to waste having another year of him and do nothing and stay in the middle. Um, we were talking about all the money that money reinvests. I was going to say, I don't, I don't think they're going to reinvest all of it. I think they're going to reinvest some of it. They'll sign an infielder somewhere. And that's to me, that's the biggest piece of this is the money they saved is what they do with it. If they, if they spend the money wisely on something that's going to help them this year, it makes the trade look a lot better. And and to some people, it's not going to look better because they want them to take all the money and sign, you know, Josh Donaldson or Marcelo Zuna or, you know, whoever, or some people today thought they should have given the contract that obviously Garcia got for the Brewers. And may, maybe they should have, you know, maybe I, I just, obviously they're not going to do that. That's just kind of, if you kind of have to go off of what they have done historically, so they weren't going to do that. I know there were some reports yesterday circulating about, or at least one, I don't think it was multiple, that they were interested in Cesar Hernandez. And while I don't love Hernandez, I'm he's good enough to be on this roster, I suppose. Uh, we can get to that towards the end here. Because like we both just said, they have to spend you know some of the money to make this trade worth it and, and appease the fan base to some some level. Even if they don't spend enough, at least spending some of it at least puts a dent in some of those issues, I suppose. Um, yeah, one thing. I, one thing I want to say real quick about what you just said about Avisel Garcia. I, I this is one thing that I, I think about a lot, and I don't think that gets taken into consideration. But when we see guys sign with specific teams, it just because they signed for that price with that team doesn't mean that that's what. If the Indians had offered that, they would have preferred to sign with us or not. It. I think sometimes we. And I'm not saying like anyone in particular, but just in general, we, we assume, oh, he signed for that. So that means that we could have done it too. Why didn't we do that? But maybe they did make an offer or maybe they made a better offer or maybe, you know, in, in a trade talk their their package was competitive, but they decided that they preferred another guy for whatever reason. I don't think at the end of the day, just because Avisto Garcia signs for two years and uh, 20 mil, which uh, to be honest with you, I really, I'm not really a huge Avisto Garcia guy. So I w- really wouldn't have wanted to pay him $10 million a year anyways. But uh, even if I did it, that doesn't mean that he would have preferred to come to us anyways. It, it kind of depends on fit. There's a lot of other things to take into consideration. So like, like the biggest example is when people talk to me about, you know, Christian Yelich, why didn't the Indians make a package for, for Christian Yelich? Maybe they did. We don't know if they did or not. It, it maybe just Miami preferred the Brewers package opposed to what the Indians were offering. I think it's just kind of, it's skewed because of, Oh, this is what it took to get him. Well, we could have offered the same thing. It doesn't mean that that's what would have gotten it done. So I think it's something for people to to keep in mind when they see guys sign somewhere that just because they took that there in a specific place doesn't mean that's what we could have done to get that same player. There's a lot of factors that go into it. I'm glad you said that because I wanted to make this point too before I got off on the tangent. I was just on and derailed us and go away from the direction I really wanted to go in when you were talking about the Brandon Marsh uh, issue or the, uh, the the report that the Indians wanted Brandon Marsh, because people have brought this up in the past, 
you know, the Todd Frazier trade a couple of years ago where I forgot, I don't even remember if the White Sox on it or the Reds even got for him. I don't think it ended up being a great deal. They got uh, Peraza. Then they get Peraza and, uh, and like Scott Shebler. Then they sent off like Trace Thompson or there was oh, yeah. like a big three. It was like a big three team trade with the like Dodgers the Dodgers. Game. Yeah. They so, got, yeah, I forgot who the pieces were, but I yeah, continue. Yeah. So there were reports how the Reds were asking for, you know, Danny Salazar. And this is what, I think 2015. So yeah. They were asking for Danny Salazar. They were asking for Cody Allen. They were asking for uh, Bradley Zimmer or Clint Frazier or something. And everyone was like, well, that's stupid. That's a lot of money. That's a lot to trade for, you know, Todd Frazier at the time. And, and they ended up getting, you know, Jose, they traded Jose Peraza for him. And everyone's like, well, why couldn't the Indians beat that? And this goes back to the point about how the Indians view Class A is, okay, they asked the Angels, maybe they asked the Angels for Brandon Marsh. You know, every, every top 10, 20 prospect, every player in every roster isn't the same across the board. Like, not every number one prospect across Major League Baseball is – you know, equal to each other in, in terms of trade value and how teams value them, you know, mm-hmm. outside of what Adelaide, uh, I can't even say his last name, Rutschman, the Orioles yeah. first, first round pick last year. I guarantee you every, almost every other team's farm system has a better number two or three than theirs. So just because the Indians are, inter- or the other team's interested in, you know, the number two prospect like Marsh doesn't mean everybody can give up the number two prospect because the Indians might not see him as a number two prospect. And clearly, they obviously they asked for Brandon Marsh because the Angels probably didn't have anybody else in the roster the Indians wanted. You know, we talked mm-hmm. about what Tommy Lastella and and maybe Marsh that that was maybe part of it. Like there were no pieces on the major league roster the Angels probably wanted to trade because they're trying to contend this year, and so are the Rangers. But obviously, they felt like this was a worthy gamble for them, and the Indians obviously valued Class A and, and the Shields to another point over whatever the angels could give them or whatever other teams were offering. So just because you see one team make a trade for a certain package of players and in return and think that that another team should have beaten that package or your team should have beaten that package, or it doesn't make any sense that the package that was reported that was being asked of your team to trade was crazy higher than what ended up happening. That's just because that's who the team values on the roster. Like when the Todd Frazier thing went down, maybe they didn't think that uh, they, they did that the Reds didn't think that the Indians minor league second baseman at the time, whoever it might have been, I can't remember who was like you know up and coming. They didn't like Yu Chang, wherever he was at that point. Uh, they liked Jose Peraza better, or that's just the way they valued it. So they had to ask for guys that were higher up in the in the system because they valued those guys better than they valued Jose Peraza. And obviously, it wasn't a great trade, but you know. Value doesn't equate across teams. It's not always. It's not a, a linear thing that just always connects together. It's <laughs> players are valued so differently by some sort of organizations depending on traits and things like that. So I, I think people forget that you know just because a team got beat doesn't mean that their team could have beaten that. You know, right? No, that's exactly right. That's exactly how I feel about it. And I hope that we, you know, going forward, uh, everyone tries to keep that in mind when, when we look at things that happen in, in the industry and assume that we could have had that same player. Cause it's just not how that goes. No. Okay. So we've spent, I think we've spent a good amount of time breaking down the, the value aspect and the, 
the Kluber aspect, let's just quickly get the Delano Shields thing out of the way because this is a short conversation. So I think you and I both agree <laughs> that, that uh, it's not a real great fit. It's it's a weird, super weird addition because to me, he looks like a little bit better version of Greg Allen. He walks a little more than Greg Allen, so he gets on base a little more than Greg Allen has in his career so far. Um, but beyond that, I don't really see much more there than just maybe a slightly more improved version of Greg Allen and, and a little bit of depth. That's about the only thing I could really make. And and maybe it was just the this was the way of the Rangers saying, well, we'll pay off Kluber's salary, but you have to take Delano to Shields because they're going to play Danny Santana in center field, and we're not going to pay Delano to Shields two point four million this year. That's that's the only thing I can really think of, unless the Indians really really feel confident about finding a way to maximize him, his value at the plate when he's never had a season um, above league average offensively. His best season was 95 weighted runs created plus in 2015 at the age of 22 um, when he posted, what, an OPS? I think it was like somewhere in the 700 range. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, he just, you know, it, it, the the bar for center fielders hitting wise is lower. So even if like when I'm, you know, he he had a that like you said that one year that was was decent. And f- 15 and 17 he was like okay, but even though his runs created plus was below 100, he was still like around league average for a center fielder with good defense. So if you could get that out of him, that's great, but I don't I don't see that happening necessarily. I, I, it is a weird fit. I think you're right on the money when you say that it was probably the way that they paid down all Kluber salary. And we looked at it as, okay, fine. We have 26 man bench. Now the shields can be a, a fourth outfielder can come in for defensive replacements. He can pinch run for, for people late in games. If we need him to, um, he can hold down the fort for a little bit until Daniel Johnson comes up or some other guys, uh, you know, uh, Naquin is maybe ready late in the season. I don't know what his timetable is, but the one thing I did think was interesting though, and I was looking at some of the defensive metrics and it, I mean, obviously class a specifically is a ground, more of a ground ball pitcher, but the, the staff as a whole is a little bit more fly ball heavy. Um, so an outfield with Luplo, Delano de Shields, Mercado, they all can play pretty well. They can catch the ball pretty well. The infield is solid. Perez behind the plate is a gold, you know, gold glove, platinum glove winner. We were already fifth in the MLB last year with 70 defensive runs saved and a 38.9 DEF rating, uh, which was fourth in the MLB. The, could this become the best defense in the league with a certain type of personnel on the field and really go out and catch the ball? And even though we may not score the type of runs that we're hoping, we're, we're going to defend so well with our pitching staff that we'll be able to prevent runs in a, in a way that almost helps us win in the same way that scoring runs would be. And I, I don't know if that's just grasping at straws. I don't know how volatile some of these defensive metrics are obviously very up and down. So I don't know if next year, you know, the 70 defensive runs saved will become much less, even if we do have better personnel on the field, but I'm interested to see how the defense looks because I think that is an area that Delano de Shields will really help solidify a very formidable defensive group person you know personnel wise yeah i mean he does definitely bring value there's no doubt he's got value as a major leaguer that's why he's you know been up here this is going to be his he's one twos this he's played four full seasons basically over 300 or 400 at bats so obviously he's given made he's given major league value on a roster um, it's just not what you want i i and the, and the other thing too is 
I know people are going to say, if we're talking about how the Shields kind of balances out the money or convinces the, tech, tech, uh, the Rangers to take all of Kluber's salary, well, if the Indians were agreed to pay you know $3 million of Kluber's salary because they've gotten a better player, Probably. I mean, maybe they could have, but I, I don't think that I don't think that giving the Rangers the equivalent of what DeShields is owed um, to get a better player in return. I don't think you're going to get a Willie Calhoun or a Nick Solak from that. I don't know what you would get, but I'm not, I'm, I don't think there's like a significant upgrade from DeShields based on and I'm just going straight up with with how much money. The Shields makes and how much money Kluber makes. Like obviously, if you were like, "Oh, we'll pay," you know, half of Kluber's seventeen million dollars salary. Yeah, then you probably might get a better return. Um, but I, I don't think I don't think three million or two point four million really turns the Shields into Willie Calhoun or Nick Solak. That's the other thing too. Definitely doesn't uh, the way way teams value prospects now and even some of the stuff that we talked about in the first podcast about prospect valuation and, and how Fangraphs kind of put together uh, estimates for what each future value tier of player is worth in surplus value over their controllable years. And like a 50 future value prospect is like 22 to $25 million in surplus value. So to throw Solak, who is a 45 to 50 range, probably for most prospect publications in the Indians would have had to pay down a lot of Kluber salary. And it still might not have been, quite what they were looking for. So I don't think I, I, I like the, the thought process there of, you know, the, the shields is more valuable than just getting another 40 or 45 to put in the system, at least get some major league value. Don't, don't pay someone else to have your old player play for them and see if the shields can make some type of impact, even if it's in a 0.5 to one work capacity where he's playing good defense and, and stealing some bags late in games, but there's no hit. There's no, offensive value here whatsoever and you know like I said earlier in the podcast I I was a little upset that we couldn't get extracted another a better hitter out of this now I got actually a question for you because I I heard this on the radio today someone said would you have felt better if the Rangers and I think you would have but I'm curious how much better if if the deal had been Nomar Mazzara and and uh, Emmanuel Classe instead of the Shields obviously you feel a little bit better there's a little bit more upside but I'm not I'm not really a big Mazzara guy. I don't I don't see a lot from him that makes me believe that he's going to be anything more than a platoon bat with some streaky power here and there. He doesn't do anything exceptionally well. So what would your take on the trade have been if you had seen that type of return based off as opposed to this one? Yeah, I actually I actually heard the the, the comment you were talking about right there too. I happen to be tuning in at that time, uh, and they also mentioned that you know, had the Indians had to kick back a prospect in order to make it Mazzara and class a, and it depends on what kind of prospect too. Cause I think that's, I think that's on the money. I think as well, I, I'm, I'm with you on, on uh, Mazzara. I think there's still some upside there. Uh, it's a nice gamble for the Kluber trade to see if Mazzara can kind of break out at all. But I guess it depends on what kind of prospect you have to kick in. Cause I don't think the Rangers would have done, Class A and Mazzara for Kluber straight up. I think the Indians definitely would have had to throw a prospect in. I just – I don't really know a lot about Steel Walker, which was the guy that went to Texas for for uh, Mazzara in the first place. I think I looked at his numbers, and, and I, I kind of stuck out to me as like a – kind of a Will Benson profile with maybe a little less swing and miss. 
I don't know if I would have been comfortable giving Will Benson for Nomar Mazar, maybe just because I think Benson's so far away and there's too much risk there. So maybe I would have done that, but yeah, I guess it depends on the prospect, but yeah, I think, I think he would have felt a little bit better um, just for the upside alone. I mean, you, you know, there's a good floor for the shields. The, the Indians pretty much know the shields is floor. It's a safe one. You're going to get some value on the bases and on defense. Mazara, you know, could put up, you know, a zero win season, you know, he could not continue to flail in the middle offensively and he's not really a great defender. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you would have felt maybe a little bit better, but that almost feels like name value feeling better. It you is. know, that's, and that's mm-hmm. what I hate. I hate, I hate when people are like, well, I know this guy's name, you know, it makes me feel better. That's not how baseball works. That's not how any sport works. So, um, which is, you know, part of the issue with not liking the return for Corey Kluber because he's Corey Kluber. Um, so, yeah, I guess maybe marginally, but it also, again, would have depended on what the Indians would have had to send with Kluber because I really don't think they would have done Class A and Mazzara for Kluber straight up. Probably not. And I, I, I like – I was literally just getting ready to say it's about the name ballots because everybody knows who Nomar Mazar is. He's been in the league for a few years. He's put up a whopping 1.7 war in four seasons. And wow. everyone's, you know, yeah, he, I mean, he gets, he doesn't get on, he gets on base. He's pretty much a league average hitter across the board. He's never posted a runs created plus over 95 in his four seasons in the bigs. He has a little bit of raw pop. He's, he's only hit 20 home runs. He's hit 20 home runs three times and 19 home runs once. And that's it. And, and there's still, everyone's still on the Nomar Mazzara train because yeah, he's young and there's a lot, there is upside. It would have been, I would have definitely liked to see if the Indians could have teased some potential out of him. But that profile is not a guy that I get excited about. And also, I don't think we need another guy who struggles to get on base uh, and has no defensive value. I think we have a couple guys like that already that probably aren't going to post great on-base percentages next year. And maybe like, you know, Fran Mill and Roberto Perez doesn't really get on base a lot. And that's, you know, he, he contributes a lot on the defensive side. But the lineup is already – filled with even Mercado doesn't get on base at an extremely high clip for a guy who's supposed to be at the top of the order. So you already have those issues. Adding another guy with that same issue isn't really going to help us score any more runs. And if we just add Cesar Hernandez, who has had one bad year on base percentage wise, but actually gets on base for his career at a much higher clip. So I, I think it's the name value part portion of that. Um, which I understand for people that don't watch baseball as much. So it feels better when you know what's going on. But like I said earlier, trust the front office. I think they're going to do a good job of, of assembling this team this year. Yeah, I, I would still probably have taken the upside of Mazzara. Like, I think there's still a chance that something happens. He's young enough where something could click for him, whereas we kind of know what the Shields already is and – We'll see how that equates to what kind of value he can give the Indians. Um, and like I said, it, it would have depended on the prospect too. And if it would have been too good of a prospect, then it kind of negates your surplus value there. Um, you ready to, to talk about class A? I think we've said all we need to say about Delano to Shields, probably more than we yeah. need to say. <laughs> probably, but yeah, no, I'm ready to talk about class A. I've, I've uh, been excited about, about this one all day doing a lot of trying to do a lot of reading and just get a feel for him. Um, So yeah, what's your, I mean, what do you, what initial returns for you? What have you seen? 
What have you watched um, in video, you know, metric wise? Is there anything that stands out to you specifically? I enjoyed the piece that uh, Ben Clemens did on fan graphs in August, because at the end you basically see that, and this is what other people have said, that class A is basically just a unicorn. Like nobody in baseball has this cut fastball. Nobody, there's not a lot of, there's not a ton of movement on the cutter, but and I, I, I don't know how spin rate really affects a cut fastball and how hitters view that. You probably have a better understanding of that than I do. I know he's um, in the upper like 90th or 95th percentile in fastball spin rate and fastball velocity. Um, but the cool thing is, like I said, he, nobody has a pitch like this in baseball, it seems like. And that alone makes it hard for hitters to study and pick up and adjust to and try to make contact on it. And it's almost like, you see a fastball like that because it's moving so fast, you're expecting it to, you know, have some arm side run to it. And instead it just kind of, it almost looks like it stays in place instead of running. So it's not like a traditional cutter, almost like a straight fastball that that has the, maybe it has the, I'm going to, I, again, I don't know much. I don't know enough about spin rate. I need to educate myself a little more on spin rate. And um, I was, I saw your tweets earlier about, um, on just a couple things on his, his fastball, how he holds it and how it gyrates. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe it gives the appearance of a four seamer, but it doesn't have that bite to it. The cutter does. So it stays in place, but it fools hitters into thinking it's going to run away when actually it kind of stays in the same plane and winds up being a strike. So it kind of looks like a cutter. And then sometimes these camera angles aren't so good, but Whatever he does with the fastball, not only does it does it come in at 99 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, there's some sort of deception on that pitch that makes it impossible for hitters to pick up. And you would think a guy like that would probably have a better swinging strike rate. Um, 10.4 is, you know, okay. It's not great, especially for a guy who throws 100. Um, but it's not like hitters are doing a whole lot of, against it. I mean, what was his hard hit rate last year? I'd have to look at the exit velocity, but I think the hard hit rate was pretty – pretty low and guys are putting it on the ground 60% of the time. So clearly even when you're making contact, you're not really sure what you're doing with it. So I think there's a lot of upside there. And and the thing I'm most excited about too, is he's 21 going to be 22. Doesn't have a lot of mileage on his arm and doesn't seem to me that he has a delivery that's overly exerting effort or violent. It looks like it's pretty, pretty clean, repeatable and really mostly generated out of, great arm speed, which makes me excited because you're not worried about, you know, like Andrew Miller was great for that period of time, but geez, Andrew Miller had a lot going on being six foot five or six, six, whatever he was. And, you know, the knees and the elbows and the torque where class A doesn't have to worry about that. So I wonder if he holds up a little bit better. Uh, and I'm also super excited to see Ruben Yave look at his hands on him because the Indians, I feel like teach the slider, whatever they do with the slider, I feel like there's something they do that really kind of helps it play up through guys in the system. You've seen in a lot of guys like uh, Shane Bieber slider has taken immense steps forward. Bauer was kind of self-taught, um, but you know, Kluber, Carrasco, Clevenger, all those guys kind of worked on their slider and improved them here. Yeah, there's, I, I think, um, you know, going back to what you said at the beginning a little bit, um, 
just I so I, I started taking this uh, driveline pitch design class uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, it's like 28 modules uh, go at your own pace. So just really trying to get a better feel for how, how you know, to use Rapsodo and TrackMan and, and how to look at spin rate and spin efficiency and what pitches normally do and how to change and, and uh, optimize your arsenal, if you will. Um, with, with cutters and sliders, there's, there's such a, you're talking about spin. So raw, the raw spin looks good, but with cutters and sliders, because there's a high gyroscopic component to it, because if you look at a fastball, right, like a forcing fastball from a guy with a high slot, and, you know, they say you get that ride, right, that, that carry up in the zone. If the spin axis of the pitch is perpendicular to home plate, that's going to give it that backspin. It's going to give you – the spin is going to be useful. It's going to be like a really high spin efficiency pitch, meaning all the spin is going towards movement. As you start to get the, the axis of the ball starting to get per- parallel to home plate, you lose – some of that spin to gyro spin, which doesn't affect movement. It actually kills movement. So the cutter, like you said, is basically just a fastball. It looks like a fastball. The hitter's expecting it to have the typical uh, arm side run and carry, and it it doesn't have the same vertical movement, and it and actually stays more towards the middle of the plate and even has slight positive horizontal movement, um, which makes it difficult to hit. And, I, and obviously being 99 miles an hour, it's very, very difficult to – see all that, go through that whole process and still try to hit the baseball. So there's definite value there. Um, I mentioned in, in the thread today um, about his slider and there, there's some characteristics of it that are a little bit unique. His, his cutter actually in terms of movement profile is, is a very traditional cutter. It's, it's how a lot of the guys throw it in terms of the spin direction and the way it moves. Uh, it's pretty standard across the board. There's other different variations of it, but his slider is very, it's very slurvy. It's not quite like a normal slider would profile. Um, it has more topspin than you would normally see, making it kind of more, uh, have more vertical depth to it. And it's not quite as sharp, um, especially with the gyroscopic component. It's, it's not probably not optimized. So like you said, I think the team, it's going to, I know they're going to do something with it that they, they probably saw this unicorn of a pitch in the 99 mile an hour cut fastball and go, we know how we're going to teach him how to throw this slider that's going to make it better. Now he's going to have two pitches that are going to pair well together, and he's going to be able to get outs. Um, I, I surmise that there might be an opportunity to try to teach him a, 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 maybe like a spike curve, something he can throw really hard from his, his upper arm slot um, that might get some depth to it because he obviously shows a feel for spin, even if the spin isn't useful spin at this point because of his what he throws. It, that's still a trait that you can't necessarily teach um, that's something that it's very unique to him that he has that ability. So, and, and spin rate and, and velocity are on a spectrum. The harder you throw, the, it proportionally increases. A lot of times your spin rate is going to go up. Um, so they have Bauer units that kind of puts it on a scale. His, his four seam fastball on a scale is a little bit above average of what a, about, you know, what an average Bauer unit would be, which should be about 24. He's like 25. So that's spin rate divided by velocity. And that get, and that helps you compare guys, across different velocities and spin rates to see what's impressive. Like if you got this guy throwing 2,500 RPMs on a fastball, that's 99 and you have Koji Urihara spinning a fastball at 2,489 miles an hour, that's more impressive than the guy who throws hard just because of the way that works. So um, definitely a way to optimize this. I'm excited to see what they do. Uh, and I think he's going to be a force out of the bullpen. I really do. I, I, I definitely think that they can tease out the the best potential um and him and, and hopefully pair him with Karen check in hand for however long he's here for and, and have a pretty nice back of the bullpen 
with some of these other hard throwers that are coming up. That goes back to like Gideon's last year had a ton of funky arm angles. That was kind of how they got by without having premium velocity in the bullpen is they had guys that were throwing at very different arm angles. And I think the Indians kind of made it a point to see if that was something that could kind of combat like the fly ball revolution and um, could combat velocity. That's why you see uh, Nick Sandlin and Robert Broom up on their charts in the minor leagues that could be up this year. Um, and James Karinchak is, is part of that too, because he comes straight over the top and tunnels his fastball and, and curveball so well. I like what you said about the potential to teach him the cur- uh, a spike curve too, because if you can get him to tunnel um, the fat, the cutter and the slider, and then add an, an over the top pitch that comes out of, out of his, I don't know, you call it what a, a high three quarters, maybe. Yeah. High three quarters. Yeah. If you can get a, if you can get a ball to come out of that arm slot, the way you like when, t- pit, when hitters are expecting a cutter and you get the, the, the vertical drop on a curveball like that, you're going to, stun a lot of hitters that way so that would be really interesting interesting to see if they like you said if they feel like he already shows a feel for spin um if if a curveball even if it's just a show me pitch you know if it's something he can just pop over for a get me over strike you know that at least puts it in the batter's mind that he's got to be able to watch out for something coming in that's a little bit slower than the the cutter and the slider and uh he's got to watch for the vertical drop on it and then you come in and you see the, how the cutter and the slider runs, you know, you're really making it tough on a batter who's only going to see him for, uh, you know, 10 pitches or 11 pitches. So there's a lot they can do with him. And I, I really, I, if you're going to trust anything, you know, like you said, we trust the front office. Um, it's not often they come out bad on the on ends of trades. Uh, I think a lot of people are still skeptical on the Yanni Diaz and Jake Bowers swap. Uh, and maybe, maybe rightfully so, but I feel like when it comes to pitching, the Indians do a really good job over anything that you can maybe question how they evaluate hitters. And there's an issue there to be, to be talked about, but when it comes to pitchers, I, they're not stupid about who they acquire and who they trade. So I think it's almost like if the Indians are interested in a pitcher, you should be asking yourself why. And I think there's a lot here with class a over the next several years and hoping that what I said is true about his, uh, his body type and his arm speed and, if all that holds up, because the only the only thing you can really worry about here is the volatility of relievers and and high usage rates and and how they break down over time. But I think uh, I think you've seen with with guys like Miller and, and Hand who they got later in their careers after some mileage was built up on them that they tend to flame out a lot. But I think Classe is a little bit different in that respect, and he's so early on in his career where they're going to get a lot of value out of him over the next several years. Yeah, I uh, I think that um, you know going back to to what you just said, I I really do believe that um, you know they're really gonna they're gonna be able to develop him better than I I mean not to not to you know crap on the Rangers, but they're not really churning out stud minor leaguers very often, or at least haven't in the last few years. I mean, it seems like a lot of their guys, and obviously Joey Gallo took some steps forward this year, but for the most part, the team has really the the farm system hasn't really been great. So I'm I'm wondering if the Rangers really didn't know exactly how they were going to get the best out of class A and the Indians identified these things right right away and and said this is this is our guy. You're right. He when I saw him pitch, I watched some video of him today, very smooth mechanics, quick arm action, not a lot of effort to throw as hard as he does, which is encouraging. 
you know, tall, taller guy, wiry frame, put on a lot of weight, wasn't throwing very hard when he signed at 16, has continuously moved up in terms of velocity over the years. And, and now he is where he's at. I, I, you know, going back to kind of something that I tweeted about earlier, but um, I just don't know. I would love to see them try to teach him a cutter and, and a, or not a cutter, a curveball and a slider. I just, some of these guys who have that, that weird, uh, like slight supination and not even supination really, but even like where they, their fingers get around the ball and they have that natural cut. It, it, it may be hard to teach them how to throw a curveball just because they're naturally the way that their arm moves and their wrist positioning at release. is just going to happen. Like Kenley Jansen, he throws like 80% cutters and has a lot, has had a lot of success and his cutter is not like class A's and it has a little bit more vertical ride in the zone. Um, but he does throw it to low to, you know, maybe touches 95, not anymore, but he used to. And he's had a lot of success being able to do that without really using uh, an off-speed pitch that often other than the cutter. So I think he can, I think classic can definitely do it. I would think that the, the slider would be a little bit easier for him and they can choose whether they want to try to pair a more horizontally moving pitch or one that was the vertical depth. But like, like you said, the Indians, the Indians are the pretty much the cream of the crop in, in terms of pitching development in, in this league. And I think that uh, I think class A is going to have an impact here in the next, if not this coming year within the next couple of years is going to be a really big part of what we do here. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to see a, a potential seven eight nine of of Class A Kurinchak and uh, Brad Hand. I also not to make this about a prospect thing. I also wouldn't count out Cam Hill too. The Indians really like him, and uh, he was coming off of Tommy John throwing ninety five ninety six and sort of had the Cody Allen curveball too. So they got a couple of guys with a nice fastball breaking ball combination that are coming along. I think the pen has a chance to be in really good shape for twenty twenty with this trade and with the options they have. And then that, that's the other thing too, is they get a reliever here who potentially is a really high leverage type reliever. And if the Indians are assuming any risk in the, in the rotation where, you know, you've got Bieber and Clevenger and you're not hundred percent sure about Carrasco. And then you've got Plesak and Savali and Plutko in some order there. They're assuming some risk in the rotation, hoping that Bieber and Clevenger can really shoulder the heavy load and, you hope that Carrasco is is a number three, um, but when you when you have a bullpen that has the seven the potential seven eight nine of Karinchak and Class A in hand, you at least kind of ease the burden a little bit uh, on those younger guys or on the rotation guys. You find a little more skeptical, and maybe they're still another bullpen arm short. But uh, I feel much better about the bullpen right now than I did a year ago when they were what counting on Tyler Clippard to be a guy like that. It kind of felt like it was, it was going to be cause they, you know, they claimed that Nick Whitgren, nobody really knew what was going to happen there. And uh, people were counting on what John Edwards back in April. I mean, I liked, I liked John Edwards, story, but it obviously didn't pan out the way the Indians hope. So I felt really much a lot better about the bullpen especially when you trade a Corey Kluber that you have to have a bullpen to kind of rely on to, like I said, uh, assume some of the risks that you're taking with the rotation. Yeah, I think, I think we're definitely in a lot better place. And, and some of the, the hard throwing, exciting young minor leaguers where, you know, Robert Broom and Dalbert Siri and Arginus Angulo and some of these guys are used to Cam Hill. I've actually really never watched a lot of Cam Hill. Um, but from the way that people talk about, some of these guys coming up, we have enough to 
fortify a bullpen. And I, I think I've said this on here before, but I'm really not interested in, in ever overpaying for relievers. I, I know people have, have suggested getting, um, you know, going out and trying to grab uh, not a super expensive reliever, but somebody that can make an impact. And I just, I, I, I see the value and maybe if you're one piece away, it makes sense to do it. But I think you can really piece together a pretty, pretty good bullpen with what you have in your system and, and very cheap assets. Um, and I like the guys that we have coming up and you're right. I, I actually really liked, I actually liked John Edwards. I, I, I thought I saw a little bit of, uh, you know, some, some type of promising stuff, but he just really couldn't get it done. And I know the big concern last year was obviously the outfield and as well as, as the bullpen and, you know, the outfield ended up being not great, but not as maybe quite as disastrous as we thought it could be. And the bullpen was fine for most of the year. Not again, not elite for the entirety of the year, but had had its moments. And I think uh, I think that we have the the type of personnel here coming up that that will be able to keep that bullpen steady for years to come and, and maybe bring us back to the good old days of Brian Shaw um Cody Allen and, and Andrew Miller when we had them in 2016 with the the three-headed monster, um, like you said earlier, with with maybe Karen Chad Classe and then Hand for however long Hand's here for. I could actually see them maybe making a move and trying to trade Hand when his value is high as well with with some of these younger guys coming up. But what do you think about that? Yeah, if if, if Hand didn't have the disastrous second half that he did last year where his, he's kind of got tired and his arm started dropping, I would say maybe there's a chance, but I think it might be hard for them to go out and trade Kluber and then go out and trade hand. Uh, I'm sure they probably gauged his, his market right now, but maybe it'll happen, but I, I don't know. I think the second half really tanked his value and I don't think they're interested in selling low on Kluber and hand in the same off season. Probably not. Probably not. But I mean, that, that's going to give them a chance. They think I'm sure they're competent hand uh, rebounding. And having some experience the back end of the bullpen because you really can't go with uh, as much as I as much as I like Karinchak, I've been driving the Karinchak bus since uh, 20, 2018 and especially early last year. Uh, and pairing him with Class A is going to be a lot of fun. Or Class A, we're going to have to figure out how to, how he says that because none of us seem to know. <laughs> but I, I, I'm taking guesses. I have no idea. Yeah, I heard. I saw someone say like the it's like Class A like. Like Jimmy Clausen, but a I don't know, maybe he's Canadian. Um, there's some <laughs> Canadian, Canadian there. Um, I, you need some experience at the back end of the bullpen, so I don't, I don't think they're going to assume that much risk in the bullpen where they trade hand and go with a bunch of younger guys at the back end. So I think that kind of takes away from your stability. I mean, yeah, could the upside be higher? Absolutely, but uh, I think they they need some of the stability back there, but. Uh, you know, if someone came coming with an offer, they would probably do it. I'm sure, but I, I don't think his value is there right now. Probably not. Probably needs to pitch a little, pitch well this year. Reevaluate, reevaluate where we're at at the deadline. How everyone else is performing. How Karen Check is done. How some of the other pieces in the bullpen have have developed over the year, and then see what the market is like. And if the market is really reliever, uh, you know, in need of relievers, and there's a lot of teams out there that are willing to pay a premium for, for a guy with the pedigree of, of Brad hand under a pretty reasonable contract for the next two years, I would, I would definitely be fine moving him and I, and I wouldn't be upset about it. And I mean, frankly, I don't care that much about having traded Mejia at all. I don't think that he's done anything in San Diego. I, I, I mean, I do talk to some people 
on Twitter from San Diego that do think uh, Mejia maybe started to blossom last year, but I mean, he's not a great defender and I don't see the value with the bat enough for me to be upset that we, you know, we went, we went for it. We went and got a controllable closer and, um, but I, I would be fine to trade him if his value increased again. And if not, you can hang on to him. But like you said, relievers are extremely volatile. You never know what's going to happen. And uh, I think that it's fool's gold to hang on to guys for too long, especially in the reliever department, because you, you, you really don't know what you're going to get uh, after a couple of years of heavy usage. I'll say one thing about Francisco Mejia. Uh, my only piece of information here is when the Indians traded him, I happened to be covering a captain's game. Uh, and there was a coach there. Uh, they heard myself, another reporter, another writer talking about the trade and his sentiment was basically, thank God they traded him. So that's, that's, that's really all I needed to hear about uh, Francisco Mejia being traded. Uh, I, that's an interesting these, story. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, they, there were a lot of people in the city. I think that we're pretty down on him as a prospect. The bat, I, the bat could be special, but. I think as far as a defender, he's not going to have enough value at any position. Um, certainly the bat's not as special if he's not a catcher, but uh, at least one coach, and I'm not even going to say from what, what system, I guess you can probably surmise from the reaction, but yeah, uh, I, that was all I needed to hear about them trading Francisco Mejia to back up what I had thought of at that point. Yeah, no, I, I was all for it too. I, I just, I, I like I like the bat. There's there's bat control. There's athleticism in the swing that allows him to just get to balls that other people can't. But as I've read before, and and from especially from Fangraphs, they really preach us that bat control and hand-eye coordination are really tied to athleticism. And as athleticism decreases as you get older, some of those skill sets obviously also decrease, and that can make it difficult to find the value in, in that bat where there's really not a ton of power and. I, I don't know where if he's not catching and he's not a good catcher, does that bat really play in left field or right field or, you know, I, I, not a third base certainly. So it's really hard. It, it really, a lot of his value is tied to being a catcher and, you know, hopefully for his sake, I don't know him. I don't know him personally. So I mean, I hope he does well, but I, I, I don't personally see the the same value and I, I'm glad that we were aggressive enough and, and confident enough that we wanted to go out and make a move to fortify the bullpen, especially that year when we really needed it because we blew so many games early in the year and Zach McAllister throwing in the ninth inning. <laughs> and I'm just beating my head into a wall watching him, watching him try to throw that, that fastball and whatever you want to call his off speed, a, a crappy curveball, bad stuff. Ooh. Yeah. I'd forgotten about that. Let's, let's not end on that negative note. Uh, you know, wish, no more Zach McAllister talk. Yeah, no more Zach McAllister talk. Let's let's just wish Corey Kluber the best in Texas and uh, hope that there's a warm return for him when Texas comes to Cleveland. I think, the, I think Texas comes to Cleveland in May. So hopefully there's a, a warm return. I'm sure there will be. I think most fans are mad about the trade more than mad at him. I'm sure I'll get a nice return. Let's uh, let's look forward to what happens with Class A and let's look forward to hopefully the Indians signing a second baseman because uh, Fangraph's depth charts right now has Christian Arroyo as the uh, the starter at second base, and that just doesn't quite look good enough. So let's think about a second baseman being put under the Christmas tree this year for the Indians. We need it big time. Yeah. Uh, any any final thoughts from you? 
No, nothing. I, I think we covered it all. Uh, I was looking forward to having this conversation just because there was so much that came out. And actually, part of me kind of likes that we were we did it today because got to sit on the takes a little bit more, read a little bit more about what's going on, do some research, and then come back with a clearer head uh, to talk about what just happened. But I, I feel like we covered everything that we needed to. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward. I can't believe it's we're almost in 2020 and spring training is two months away right now. And hopefully we're we're talking about another team that's ready to compete in, a, in an AL Central that I think is being overhyped as significantly more competitive than it was. I, I think there's definitely strides being made by the White Sox, but I don't think the Twins are going to do anything of substance. And we're not really doing anything that's crazy bad or good in either way. So I think it's going to be competitive. It'll be a lot of fun this year to watch him play again. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to, I'm really looking forward to just the, uh, the calendar turning over. Cause I feel like once January hits, mostly things go a little bit faster to, uh, towards spring training. So I'm really interested to see how the rest of the off season plays out. And like I said, hoping the best for Kluber. I, I still hope he's pretty good. I don't want to, I, you know, both teams can win the trade. It's not like, you know, we ever see situations where one team has to win the trade. There's a, there's a, I think there's a, a scenario where Kluber is a, a solid number three for them and Class A ends up being a, a really dynamic, high leverage reliever. And <laughs> maybe there's a universe where Delano DeShields winds up having the best season of his career. I mean, Austin Jackson had a really good year in, in 2017 here, and then he didn't do anything after. So maybe the Indians find a way to squeeze that value out of the shields. It looks like his teammates are going to miss him. So it looks like uh, he's pretty well liked in the clubhouse. So those guys are always important too. So we'll see. Maybe there's some things off the field that the shields is going to help with as well. Cause you can never have enough of those guys either. No, definitely. Uh, lo- love the, love the glue guys, love the guys that care about the community. Hopefully he has, a positive impact in that way as a, as a veteran, as a dad who played in the bigs growing up. I mean, he understands the lifestyle. So, um, you know, hopefully that he, he does make an impact. I mean, I don't think it's likely, but you never know that crazier things have happened here. But, uh, but yeah, from my end, I'm, I'm good. I feel like we, we covered everything. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? No, just want to shamelessly plug everybody to go read, uh, read the piece I put up today about the, all the complexities. Although if you listen to this, he pretty much just got the the longer, over an hour version of the article anyway, but if you need to consume more thoughts about it, then that's up there. And um, for premium subscribers, you can go back and check out the best tools in the organization, um, which I guess if I had to go back and change it, I might have to now because best tools, I think I had a Spino and Hankins tied for the best fastball in the organization. Uh, in that column, I'm wondering now if I have to add class A to that. And I, I don't know. You throw. I don't know that anybody really throws a true cutter in the minors for the Indians too. Uh, I know Sam Hent just does, but it's not a good one. Um, no. <laughs> so if, if anybody throws a cutter, I would imagine that class A also goes to the top of that list. So um, that list is a little maybe outdated now, but uh, maybe I'll go back and augment it. But yeah, I think he's one of three guys that has an 80 grade. I would say, I would say Hankins and Espino both have 80 grade fastballs uh, or close, close, close to it. Maybe yeah. 70s. Fosse is definitely an 80, and maybe those two are 70s. But, yeah. Uh, so go back and read that and, and just swap out Espino and Hankins for Fosse in the fastball spot. But that's still out there, too. 
So uh, Thursday, I think we're still planning on uh, doing the best uh, best games slash best moments of the decade. Are you still up for that on Thursday? Uh, we may have to reschedule from Thursday, but I'm still I'm still down to do it um, at some point, whether it's sometime this week or um, you know I don't know one other whether time before Christmas would work for you, but um, but yeah, I uh, if you're if you have time, we can talk about week. it at some point. Yeah. Okay, so that's we're gonna do that eventually. So uh, we were gonna maybe do the best moments of the decade this or our favorite moments of the decade this week, but instead you're getting a Corey Kluber trade reaction podcast. So enjoy that, and uh, we'll let everybody know when the the best moments of the decade one comes out. It'll be out before the end of 20, 2019. I can say that confidently. So uh, for Michael, I'm Justin. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Smoke Signals. Thanks for getting this far in the podcast if you did we appreciate your reading and listening and uh we will talk to you before the end of the new year so merry christmas if we don't get to you before christmas and uh we will you'll hear from us again soon thanks